Somebody told me this morning that doing the history of Christianity and the history of Islam altogether was a little too much. Just wearing them out. So, sorry, but you came back, so it must be all right with you. Anyhow, we are working on understanding Islam compared to Christianity because of what's going on in the world. Uh, we did a series a few years ago called Understanding the Times, taken from the verse about the tribe of Issachar that was said to under, they understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. Uh, so our goal is to understand the times and know what we as the church, uh, as individual Christians, ought to do about some things. And this topic, uh, when I picked it, I had no idea it would explode into such a timely topic. Uh, it was timely before the last couple of weeks, but even more so now. Uh, and we're confused is what we talked about last week. Let's review just a little bit. By the way, I've got two handouts back there, pages one and two and pages three and four. Most of you were just grabbing one and coming on in. Uh, if you need the other one on your way out, Go ahead, we really won't get to three and four much tonight, so we'll do most of it next week. Uh, we hear such conflicting things on the news. We read conflicting things. Uh, we hear that Islam is a religion of peace. We hear that people kill people as their way of salvation in Islam. Uh, we hear that it's such a peaceful religion that just a few radicals have hijacked, and that's not the real religion at all. Uh, we get two Muslims on TV to discuss it, and they don't agree about anything. They say, no, that's not what the Koran really says. Uh, we've got a presidential campaign with one candidate saying, keep Muslims out, and the other one saying, let as many in as possible. Uh, so it's a little confusing in America right now, uh, what we think about this, what we should think about it. And I prefaced all of last week's, and I'm going to redo it just to make sure that you understand, uh, how do we judge something like a whole religion? How do we make that decision? And sometimes we make it about Islam pretty quickly, easily, flippantly, uh, but to make us think what I did last week was turned it around. If you didn't know anything about Christianity, how would you evaluate Christianity? Uh, would you judge Christianity uh, by talking to one preacher, to one theologian, to two theologians? Would you judge Christianity by talking to the average churchgoer? Just pick one out that says he's a Christian. Would you judge a whole religion by picking a co-worker that is a specially uh, excellent person that claims he's a Christian or a real lazy loser that claims he's a Christian? Would you judge the whole religion by that? Uh, would you judge Christianity by some famous Christian, somebody that's made the news, somebody like Hillary Clinton that claims to be a Christian, talks about her Methodist upbringing, etc., etc., but advocates as many abortions as possible. Or another fellow that claims to be a Christian that made the news named Scott Rader because he thought 
the Bible told him to go kill abortion doctors. And he did. Uh, All those examples, and we talked about them in a little more detail last week, if you look at one or two or three or 20, can you judge the Christian religion? No, it doesn't work real well. So I don't know why we think we can do that with Islam, Uh, but maybe we do. I think the better way is to look at the big picture, the history uh, the Bible itself says you'll know folks by their fruits. Uh, see what this religion has produced over the years, both Christianity and Islam, which we're working on these three nights, uh, and see what we can, some conclusions we can maybe draw. So last week uh, we started with the first page and did kind of a history the origin of Islam especially, and also the origin of Christianity, and got through the first thousand years or so, something like that probably. Uh, we kind of saw a little pattern, I think. We started to learn a few things. Then we looked at some beliefs and teachings and how different Christianity and Islam are. Uh, and we got down to where we're ready for the evidence of history Now, this part may be extremely boring to you non-history folks, but uh, I think it's important. I know it's important. Uh, We've got to look at history and figure out what the fruits have been. Uh, We talked a little bit last week about the history of the beginning of Islam and the expansion and the areas they conquered and how the Crusades came about and how Genghis Khan kind of pushed them back into their original territory a little bit. So we've been through that part of it. Uh, I want to get a little more modern times now uh, because I think it'll help us figure out what we're dealing with here. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't do this very often. Uh, We used to have men who, men and women who ran things and who were uh, in charge of things in this country, who were educated, who studied history. And they saw what happened in history, and they avoided the mistakes that somebody had already made. It helped them make the best decisions. It helped a group back in the 1700s create a constitution and a a republic that nobody had ever tried in the history of the world. They did that by looking at history. And so, all right, Rome tried this, and that didn't work so well, and Greece did this, and that didn't work. All this learning and education they took and put together and said, let's try this. And it's the most successful invention in political thought ever. Now now we're ruled and led and most voters got no clue about history. Uh, we don't understand it anymore. We don't study it. We don't want to read it. Uh, we, we want our sound bites and we're happy. Uh, that's fine until you're deciding really big things like we're dealing with now. It would be good to have somebody that understands some history. And so that's why I've jumped to this period of time about when this country started and right around there and a little bit later. 
Uh, I want to start by telling you one kind of long story that's not really in the handout uh, because there's a couple of lessons in it about how poorly we understand history. Uh, uh, The whole story is about our first war as a nation. Actually, it was a war on terror. Uh, I don't know how many real history buffs there are in here, uh, but that's the first war America had to fight against Muslim terrorists. Uh, You may have heard of the Treaty of Tripoli. Uh, You may have heard of the Barbary Pirates. Well, that's what was going on when this country was founded. Uh, Folks along the edge of Africa, Barbary Coast it was called, there were a number of countries over there, um, Algeria and Tripoli and Turkey and Morocco and Tunis, uh, by different names, these days, they're still there. They were all Muslim. And we've talked about how that expanded and how that all worked last time. Uh, but they were pirates. They were terrorists. They attacked ships on the sea and controlled that part of the area. And if you got close, they would capture your ship, take all of your goods, and capture the seamen and make slaves out of them. Okay? That was going on when this country was founded. We did pretty good while the British were protecting us, but once we revolted, we were on our own. So we didn't have any British ships to protect us, and we didn't have any Navy. So the Barbary pirates were wearing us out. Uh, Through the administrations of Washington and Adams and Jefferson and Madison, it was a problem. We paid huge fees to them, uh, to let make them give us safe passage and let us have our captives back. And once we made a treaty and paid what would today would be tens of millions of dollars, they would go back on the deal and start attacking our ships again. Uh, one year, we spent 20% of our federal budget paying Barbary pirate terrorists off. Okay. Uh, that's what was going on. Uh, Washington sent Jefferson and Adams over to negotiate, to make some kind of a deal here, uh, figure this out. And they tried. And over the next number of years, we wrote lots of treaties, and the treaties got broken and all of that. What finally brought an end to things was Jefferson, who studied all of this and figured out what was going on after he had met with them personally. Uh, Adams said, we got to build a navy to protect ourselves. So they built some ships, the old Ironsides and some others. And as soon as Jefferson was president, he sent ships over there. And he said, let's take those pirates out. That's the way, only way we'll win this. We can't negotiate. We can't afford to keep paying ransom. Uh, let's go to war. So that was America's first actual war. So anyhow, all of that went on. Now, two things that came out of that that I think indicate how poorly we understand history. One is if you get on any atheist website that wants to prove this nation wasn't founded on Christianity, guarantee you one of the first things you'll see is the Treaty of Tripoli. 
they'll say, this proves it. Okay? And there is a line in the one treaty signed in 1797 that says the America is by no means a Christian nation. Okay? Out of the other ten quintillion words written at the founding of this country, people take that sentence out of context and see there, proves it. U.S. isn't a Christian nation. Okay, if you read a little history and you read through those treaties, the whole idea was try to convince them that we as America are not waging religious war. We're not after Muslims. We just want you to quit stealing our ships. It's not a holy war for us. And the Muslims couldn't believe that. So we kept putting it in treaties. And we and the, there's a million other times in the treaties that talk about Christians, when Christians are taking slaves and all of that. So it goes into all of that. But that one little phrase is taken completely out of context by anti-Christian forces. And the only reason it's in there, along with all the other ransoms and everything else, is try to get this problem settled with people that wouldn't quit killing us. And if you read the rest of that sentence, it's absolutely obvious what it means. It means we're not a nation that is going to attack you because of your religion. We're not on a Christian jihad. We just want you to leave us alone. Okay. So that little bit, and you'll see it, You'll hear it on TV. You'll hear ignorant, uneducated people quote that as proof that, no, this country wasn't founded on Christianity. Okay. So that came out of this time. The second thing that came out of this time, and this happened very recently, so it's really understanding the times, is actually our president did this one. Uh, he made a big speech not too long ago, and the gist of the speech was, that Islam has been a part of the fabric of America since the beginning. That it's woven into the fabric of America. And that Thomas Jefferson himself had a Koran and studied the Koran. When Keith Ellison, the representative to Congress from Minnesota, who is a Muslim, was elected to Congress a couple of years ago, he made a big deal out of that. He swore himself into office, and he asked to be sworn in on the Koran. And the Library of Congress, who thought this was so wonderful, uh, loaned them the Thomas Jefferson copy of the Koran for him to put his hand on and swear allegiance to as he was inaugurated as a U.S. congressman. Uh, his statement at the time was, Jefferson understood that wisdom comes from many sources. Okay. Now, if you can learn a little history, you find out the reason Thomas Jefferson had that book uh, was, number one, because he liked books. <laughs> he had about 10,000 uh, back when most people didn't have one. He had a library of books, and he was a law student uh, when he bought that book. And what he used it for was to figure out who the enemy was. Okay? 
see, today, if you want to go, somebody starts stealing your ships and capturing your sailors and all that, uh, you just Google whatever group it is, and you learn all about it. Or you ask the CIA. The CIA says, well, here's who that is. Uh, Tom didn't have that luxury. When Thomas found out that Muslims were attacking us, he said, i got to find out who Muslims are. And the best way to do that is read their book. So he bought a two-volume set that included an English version of the Koran, but also had a lot of commentary about Islam. In fact, the conclusion of the set that Representative Ellison so proudly put his hand on and swore himself in, the conclusion of the book is that Islam is very dangerous, that it's a bad thing. Okay? Keith doesn't know much history, or he might have chosen a different Koran to swear in on. Okay? So anyhow, that little story kind of sets us up for uh, what was going on back then and helps us understand what some of the folks around that time said. And the first one on your handout is John Quincy Adams, who I've read his biography and his daddy's biography. And I think John Quincy might have been one of the smartest guys ever, uh, much less <laughs> in politics. He, he was something. Uh, he understood the world. He traveled as a little boy with his dad when his dad was an ambassador to Russia and all sorts of places. But anyhow, now bear in mind, he understood all that uh, Adams and everybody else had been through. And so here's what he said about the difference between Christianity and Islam. He said, the fundamental doctrine of the Christian religion is the extirpation or the removal of hatred from the human heart. It forbids the exercise of it even towards enemies. There is no denomination of Christians which denies or misunderstands this doctrine. All understand it alike. All acknowledge its obligations. And however imperfectly, in the purpose of divine providence, its efficacy has been shown in the practice of Christians. Now let me translate that into a sound bite for you. He says Christianity, over the history, it says you shouldn't hate people. Okay? And he says, however imperfectly we've done that, everybody agrees that's what it says. And overall, Christianity's done pretty good through the ages, he said. It, it proved pretty efficacious. Then he goes on and says, hatred is yet a passion but too powerful upon the hearts of Christians, yet they cannot indulge it except by the sacrifice of their principles and the conscious violation of their duties. No state paper from a Christian hand could, without trampling the precepts of its Lord and Master, have commenced by an open proclamation of hatred to any portion of the human race. So what he says there is, once again, a soundbite. He said, Christianity is against hatred. And if you're going to hate somebody, you can do it, but you've got to do it against your religion. Okay. And he said, no Christian 
without really stretching things, would ever write a treaty or a state paper and start out by saying that the reason we're doing this is because we hate part of the human race. He said no Christian could do that. Then his last line is, the Ottoman or the Muslim lays it down as the foundation of his discourse. And what he was talking about was his daddy, John Adams, was sent over to figure out what was going on with these Barbary pirates. And he wrote back home, and here's what he said down there at the bottom under the Treaty of Tripoli. He and Jefferson were sent to negotiate a treaty, and they met with the ambassador from Tripoli in 1786, the Muslim ambassador from Tripoli, and they wrote back home and said this, We took the liberty to make some inquiries concerning the grounds of their pretensions to make war upon nations who had done them no injury, and observed that we considered all mankind as our friends who had done us no wrong, nor had given us any provocation. The ambassador answered that it was founded on the laws of their prophet, that it was written in their Koran, that all nations who should not have acknowledged their authority were sinners, that it was their right and duty to make war upon them wherever they could be found and to make slaves of all they could take as prisoners, and on that Uh, and that every Muslim who should be slain in battle was sure to go to paradise. And that's when Jefferson said, I better read the Koran. And that's what John Quincy meant. He said, Christians do bad things, but it's not the rule in their book to do bad things. And so when he went over there, to de- he and Jefferson went to deal with these Muslims who they weren't familiar with particularly. They started out by saying, now, we don't understand why you're bothering us. You know, we try to be peaceful with everybody, and if they don't pick on us and if they don't provoke us, we're not going to bother their ships, so why are you bothering their ships? And the guy said in his statement, because our holy book tells us to. Because you don't ascribe to our authority, we've got the right to kill you and enslave you. And on top of that, when we do it, if we die trying, we go straight to heaven. Now, Thomas and John were kind of fritzed out by that, I think. This was an odd concept. It's still an odd concept. It is still hard for us to understand. How can this be? You know, and then we go back to our original method of looking at a co-worker or a doctor or somebody that says they're a Muslim, and we say, this can't be. That's why we're looking at history, folks. So in that one case, that's what John and John Quincy said about all this, Uh, some other people about the same time, studied things, and here's what they said. Uh, De Tocqueville, the Frenchman that came over here and studied America because he was so impressed with America, he also studied Islam. He said, I studied the Koran a great deal. I came away from that study with the conviction that by and large there have been few religions in the world as deadly to men as that of Muhammad. So far as I can see, it's the 
principal cause of the decadence so visible today in the Muslim world, and though less absurd than the polytheism of old, its social and political tendencies are, in my opinion, more to be feared, and I therefore regard it as a form of decadence rather than a form of progress in relation to paganism itself. Now, this is not a guy running for office or a guy doing a soundbite. This is a guy that studies the world and studies history and looks at things and figures out what's going on. And he said, I studied the Koran a long time. I've watched Muslim. He said, it's dangerous stuff. William Gladstone lived back in the 1800s, four times the prime minister of Great Britain. Uh, He stood in Parliament one time with a Bible over his head and said, as long as there is this book, there will be no peace in the world. Once again, a fellow that studied history, that looked at what was going on and said, this is dangerous. Now, the people running Britain today and for the last 20, 30 years, they don't care what Gladstone concluded. I don't know who Gladstone is, I'm sure. They prided themselves on being diverse and inclusive and found out there's some problems involved. Churchill, uh, another one of those guys that might have been as smart as anybody around. In fact, I got a a book called Churchill's Trial for Christmas, and man, I'm struggling to get through it. Whew, I'm going to make it, but it's slow going. Uh, because he wrote so many things and studied so many things and had opinions on so many things. And uh, not just one, chat, one part of it was about war and what he thought about military force and all that. One's about socialism and what he thought about it. And anyhow, it's a very interesting book, but man, it's hard reading. But he, he talked a lot and studied uh, Islam. Because he ran into it in wars. As he fought in Africa and other places, he saw it. And so here's what he said about it. How dreadful are the curses which Mohammedanism lays on its votaries. Besides the fanatical frenzy, which is as dangerous in a man as hydrophobia in a dog, there is this fearful, fatalistic apathy. The effects are apparent in many countries. Improvident habits, slovenly systems of agriculture, sluggish methods of commerce, insecurity of property exist wherever the followers of the prophet rule or live. A degraded sensualism deprives this life of its grace and refinement, the next of its dignity and sanctity. The fact that in Mohammedan law every woman must belong to some man as his absolute property, either as a child, a wife, or a concubine, must delay the final extinction of slavery until the faith of Islam has ceased to be a great power among men. Individual Muslims may show splendid qualities, but the influence of the religion paralyzes the social development of those who follow it. No stronger retrograde force exists in the world. Okay? Now, in this politically correct society, 
you can't say that. You can't even think it. Some of you are looking shocked that I read it. Okay? This is history. This is people that looked and said, all right, there's a problem here. Okay? Today you get run off the airwaves if you hint that there's a problem. Okay? But looking at history, and once again, let's go back to our ground rules. We're not judging individual Muslims. We're not judging your co-worker. We're not judging the folks that live in the neighborhood or anything else. We're looking at history and what this religion produces and its fruits. Now, next week when we get into the the problems with Islam, I think we'll see why it does that. Okay. And once again, I'm not I'm not issuing judgments on individual Muslims or anything else. If you want to believe what some people say that I've heard on the radio, they say it's a great religion. It just needs to be reformed. It needs a reformation. Okay. I think next week we'll see there's some fundamental flaws in it because of who started it and how he started it and what the values were then that create problems. Okay. Uh, we'll go ahead and read the top of page three there if you got that. Uh, That's kind of my conclusion of the history part. Uh, for 1,400 years, Islam has been around. And its history is generally war and persecution and atrocities. Yeah, there have been periods where they've been kind of peaceful. Uh, in fact, they were pretty peaceful after Jefferson sent old Ironsides over there. They didn't bother us for quite a while. Okay. Now they are. Anyhow, that concept of eliminating or persecuting non-Muslims, that's what we have seen for 14 centuries. Wherever the religion goes in enough numbers, it turns to that. Uh, I put an example down there of the Sudan, because it was just recently uh, the Muslims became a majority. Uh, they killed two million Christians. Killed them. Thousands more were enslaved. Uh, in, in countries where they become the majority, there's no freedom of religion. You go to Muslim countries, you're not going to build a church building. You're not going to build a synagogue. You're not going to build a Hindu temple. It's not going to happen. Uh, the track record of the religion is persecution, no freedom of religion, war, atrocities, because that's what Muhammad put in the book. Yeah. That's what he wrote down, and that's what people that follow it come up with. Uh, Chuck Golson had an interesting statement he, back when we had 9-11. Uh, he said, the truth is, that Bin Laden and his followers did not hijack Islam. They simply took it seriously. The book's got some real problems in it. Uh, the, the 
the founder of Islam has some real problems. The basic tenets of it have some real problems that have created problems for 1,400 years. Uh, so we'll try to talk about those next week and come up with a conclusion about what we maybe ought to do about this in our own little world. So uh, come back next week and we'll try to finish up our look at Islam and Christianity. Thanks for your attention. Hope some of it was helpful. If you're here tonight and need to respond to the Lord's invitation or maybe you have some request of this family, we'd be happy to hear what it is. We're going to stand and sing a song. Brother Ryan's going to come and lead us. If you need to come, come. <laughs>